0: Welcome to the Windswept and Interesting podcast. I'm Richard Baines. So far on this podcast we've featured a lot of folk from the conventional conservation world and a few from the more radical side. Today's episode is about a slightly different organisation which has quite different roots. My guest grew up with animals literally in his pocket. He supports grouse moors and is happy that some wildlife should be shot. Rory Kennedy is Director Scotland for the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust and I spoke to him down the line because the weather was terrible this week and the site visit just wasn't on. I asked him first of all to tell me a bit about himself.
1: I grew up in rural Renfrewshire. Um, I was a sort of slightly odd kid at school that you know used to carry ferrets in his inside pocket and uh, would would be out f- uh, fly fishing first thing in the morning before school and all that sort of stuff. Countrymen through and through and I I sort of went down the the normal route of sort of pressure to do a sensible job. So I I I ended up training as a chartered accountant. Found it fairly soulless. Spent most of my working career in that area. Working on 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 rural specific sort of sectors, uh, and also looking at sort of economic development, particularly to t- rural tourism. So quite quite a broad background. And then from there, I went to work for an international conservation consultancy. And when the role at GWCT came up, Game of Wildlife Conservation Trust, I'd been involved with the organisation for years as a member and then on a regional committee. And I didn't take a lot of persuading it. It's one of those jobs that it's a bit of a calling. And if you look at most of the people in the trust, very few people leave once they join. It really sort of is a bit of a, a mission-led organisation. And hence the reason I've been, been here for now for about three years. And I say I've, I've always been absolutely obsessed with the outdoors, Uh, both from a point of view of of, of being very much into wildlife um, also outdoor sports as well land management we had a small kind of hobby hobby farm at home and uh, got very much involved with that so it's always been something that's been in the blood and a lot of my relatives for generations have worked on the land in, in, in various capacities so it's something I very much grew up in in that sort of world and a ferret in your pocket absolutely never be without one that can be risky uh, can be can be not if they're not well trained <laughs> in your trouser pocket <laughs> and, and, and i never went quite that far but uh, but yeah the, for the brave braver man and i uh, and i'm sure they would <laughs> so the game and wildlife conservation trust what
0: is it and, and how does it relate to other conservation organizations because it's not on the same spectrum as uh, the woodland trust and, and trees for life and scottish wildlife trust is it
1: no, we we have a we have a different approach. You know, we're we're, we're a registered charity, we're a research-led organisation. Predominantly, that's the, the the focus. In Scotland, I have about ten in the research team. I think I'm, I'm up to about a last count about six doctorates in, in in Scotland. Our approach is slightly different, though. So we we've come from the background of basically back in the day, it was all about game management, and we work incredibly closely with the farming sector. So if you look at Scotland, about eighty percent of the country is farmland. Whereas a lot of organisations will focus in on managing reserves, so about eight percent of the country it, it it is nature reserves. Our approach is that you can never really make the sort of biodiversity impact you need to on sort of penny packet nature reserves. Not taking anything away from them, they're you know they're a valuable resource. But really, to address some of our biodiversity um, issues in this country, we really need to work with uh, across most land land um, owners. Um, particularly getting to work together so we've really sort of pioneered the approach of what we call farmer clusters Um, and if you look at that particularly down in England where it really has taken off we've now got a million hectares um, under um, GWCT clusters and that's where farmers come together We, we enable it we facilitate it we give them the training but they basically set the biodiversity outcomes they want and then they work together to achieve that so our approach is very much bottom up and we will work with virtually any land use interest to try and maximise the biodiversity benefits that can actually come from, I suppose you would class it as productive land.
0: How is GWCT funded?
1: Well, we're a registered charity. Uh, we we work with a lot, lots of different uh, interest groups. We, we, we work with large corporations. Historically, we've had quite a lot of research money from the likes of the European Union. A lot of our grassroots support comes from land use, uh, particularly the shooting community. They always sort of see it as in some ways, they're, they're they're Jews putting something back that they also put money into GWCT, and it's effectively fun, funding conservation. And our ethos always is that where you do game bird release and shoot, shooting, there should be a net biodiversity gain. So th- this this is really our mission that they fund. And um, it's the
0: Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust. Is it conserving things so they can be shot?
1: That's where it originated. Been on the go for about hundred years now. I think the organisation has has evolved very much a lot more into the mainstream. Conservation, so so we work with you know large food manufacturers, as an example. We do a lot of research work, or uh, well, formally with the the EU. A large amount of it now is absolutely nothing to do with with game management whatsoever. It's still very core cool to what we are. At the same time, we don't shy away from that, and I think there's a lot of positives that can be taken from game management. Some of the the first forms of conservation in the world have been led by game management so you can take principles from that and there's good and the bad from game management but if you can take some of the better principles and and take those and, and apply them to conservation I, th- I think it's fair to say a lot of the land that we work on that could be productive has better biodiversity outcomes quite often than land run purely for conservation and that's because we have been able to marry up both approaches.
0: So what are the top priorities for the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust?
1: Well, certainly speaking from the Scottish perspective, um, I mean, I, I think it, it's driving more and more about the farming side of things. That's that's very important for us. And it's not abandoning our, our roots uh, in game management. Increasingly, it's it's about things like natural capital, about low-carbon farming. Um, and we've got two demonstration farms. We've got one in the Cairngorms, which is sort of hill-edge farming. But we've also got um, the Allerton uh, project in the uh, Rutland sort of area uh, it's been running for 30 years now in fact over that I think 32 years now and a lot of the um, environmental measures that are now fairly sort of mainstream when it comes to particularly arable lands so beetle banks and wildflower margins they weren't invented by GWCT the chances are they were pioneered by us and we we run a farm there that is a low very productive farm uh, it's low carbon very high biodiversity and it, it's that sort of side of the trust that is the brave New World in many ways. Um and, and likewise with uplands as well, increasingly it's about carbon and natural capital resources. So there there's a lot of it of that that goes alongside what's been our traditional uh, meat and meat and veg. We work very closely with uh CMPA, uh Kingdoms National Park Authority, so it's part of the Heritage Horizons project. So so we're one of the flagship flagship farms for that. We took a farm on that had a very large number of of waders, and and we've taken it on and we we've significantly increased the the productivity and output of the farm, whilst increasing biodiversity and and maintaining this this fantastic assemblage of, uh, of waders. It's a real success story, and we're now looking at that farm and sort of saying, well, we've we've almost demonstrated that concept. How do we take it on to the next level? About trying to have an upland farm that is carbon neutral which which is challenging very challenging not even sure if it's it's fully achievable but you know we're certainly making good inroads into it
0: And, and challenges for your organization what are the sort of problems you're facing
1: um i mean most a lot of the time when you get challenges there's also opportunities in there i mean i think the thing that frustrates me is the ideological impasses in conservation um if you sat me down with a you know a prominent rewilder and a you know somebody from a prominent bird charity most of the time we actually agree on 70 to 80 percent you know we've got shared objectives in the whole but often it's more about the certainly between mainstream conservation and GWCT it's more about the how do you get there you know and and that's that's where quite often that that 20 percent difference is actually what causes political impasses that mean nothing happens um and you know i'm sure sure there's topics you'll come on to capuchini is a classic example and there's times when you really just want to sort of you know knock everyone's heads together and go look surely surely it's worth (laughs) burying our ideologies And, and everyone carries ideal ideologies and biases I know I do. You have to sometimes be conscious of your own biases to be able to, um, to, to to deal with these things. But but that's the big frustration for me, and I'm sure it's across the organisation. So
0: if, if it was proven to be better for conservation, would you abandon perhaps maybe sport shooting of a, a particular species um, in the interest of the greater good?
1: Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it, it would need to be demonstrated by evidence. And certainly we look at things all the time, you know, th- things like uh, um, you know, Woodcock being a-, a particularly contentious one at the present moment. Um, should we be um, shortening the season? Um, our-, our approach is, well, let's be evidence led by this. And we w- may well um, alienate uh, certain groups of members if-, if we get to the stage of-, of agreeing with that. But whatever we agree on is is always evidence based.
0: I suppose that has happened with the Cape
1: of hasn't it? Exactly, and and species as well. Where effectively they're, they're, there's voluntary bans, um, and it, and on the whole, it actually works pr- pretty well. Um, you know, I certainly have never, you know, n- never been aware of of any sort of large scale breaches of, of of where there have been voluntary bans in. So that, that that would always be our approach in most of these things. It's like codes of conduct. In general, if you can find a voluntary approach and you can get people to buy into it, quite often it's more impactful than, than, than coming in and having overly bureaucratic systems that ultimately tend to have unintended consequences. But, you know, as I say, we're always evidence-based.
0: One of those controversial areas where there is the big divide, grouse moors, we're facing, um, soon we'll be facing licensing of grouse moors here. Um, there's uh, quite a lot of feeling amongst rewilders and that sort of constituency that grouse was a really bad idea. So what's your organisation's take on that?
1: Well, we work quite closely with the, the grouse shooting sector. Um, first of all, on, on licensing, my personal position on this is that I'm, I'm reasonably welcoming of licensing. It comes down to the devil and the detail. And generally speaking, you know, government are not very competent in general about producing good legislation um, that doesn't have unintended consequences. But if, if the licensing does what it's meant to do I think it could be you know quite a positive thing it's it's about transparency the government is aware of what happens on virtually every acre of farmland in Scotland through the farming returns likewise forestry is heavily regulated everyone knows what goes on in every um, acre of forestry so it's maybe just bringing grouse shooting in line with that as long as it's not you know overly restrictive on on the practices that are already going on certainly our view on grouse moors again it's, it's backed up by evidence that Grouse moors are, are very very high in biodiversity, particularly of bird species, ground nesting, red listed, amber listed bird species. There's been a massive amount of scientific scientific work done on that, not just by us across the board, and actually a lot of them have toned it down. But some some of the greatest defenses I've heard of grouse shooting have have come from mainstream conservation organisations in the in the past. Um, maybe not as available on their websites now nowadays as they were in the past. But you know, it, the, the the evidence about the the, the biodiversity impacts on grouse moors are fairly plain to see. This is also coming from the Scottish Government's uh, own review they did a while back where they had uh, James Hutton Institute and SRUC uh, look at it. And again, the biodiversity arguments. You You can argue both ways because any land use um choice and and, you know even rewilding is 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 a is a it's a a choice to manage land in a certain way all of these has winners and losers and you can look at um scrubby woodland which is the most obvious sort of replacement to 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 grouse moors and you can point to species that are there particularly some some of the the plant species are there that are are maybe not of um there on a managed grouse moor, but the fact is we know what's on a managed grouse at present. A good example, when a while back we were on uh, a grouse moor together and uh, in uh, sort of Grampian neck of the woods, or also a bit, bit further south than that, and we saw seven raptor species in a day. Uh, if you go to a grouse moor in May, absolutely moving with, with waders. Um, we've seen golden eagles. The, la- the last two visits to that moor I've seen golden eagles, uh, merlin. So when people go on about grass moors, they often hear like, uh, terms like wet deserts. It, 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 quite frankly, it's nonsense. Um, it's maybe a different type of biodiversity than a rewilder might envisage, but to argue that they're bad for the environment is there's no real evidence to support that.
0: You're listening to the Windswept and Interesting podcast, and I'm talking to Rory Kennedy of the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust. So what does Rory think about the return of the lynx? We'll be back in one minute so you can find out. So you mentioned rewilding there. Um, what's, the, what's the GWCT take on that as, as, as a concept? It has taken off a lot. Conservationists I talk to really want to stick to the term rewilding, making things wild again. But you believe that the hand of man is required, I think, don't you? Yes,
1: yes. Um... And the the problem is with re- rewilding, it's very hard to define. So many people will have a different v- vision of what rewilding is. Um, you know, I, I can definitely support a form of rewilding in the right place for the right reasons. Um, there's a f- fantastic map I've seen used a, 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 a few times showing where there's a sort of lack of connectivity between large areas of, of forestry, in, of native forestry in Scotland, um, and where, for giving up small amounts of land, you could connect these up with strategic wildlife corridors. You know that's the sort of approach to rewilding which I think makes a lot of sense. I think it's easy for people to to understand the why and get behind it. I think one of the challenges with rewilding, and even some of the rewilding organisations now have have come to accept this, that it's often been a stalking horse for other agendas as well. Whether that be animal rights people that don't like grouse moors because of killing animals, or whether it be land reformers. And I think that's actually held back the rewilding movement because actually what it's done is it's it's using it for another purpose. If if you look at rewilding as something that's actually fairly apolitical, making land wilder, there's definitely areas of Scotland that would benefit from it. But you need to balance that with jobs. You need to balance that with the biodiversity on areas that would be potentially worse off or certainly very different to the detriment of some pretty iconic red-listed species um and and you've got to look at it from a food production point of view because you know we don't have food food security in this country i think we're far more aware of it post covid but if we are giving up farmland for rewilding and um, then that food has to come from somewhere else it's coming from overseas where there's carbon miles there's probably lower environmental standards in the countries they're coming from so effectively what we've just done is offshored our environmental responsibilities for our food source I, th- I think we have to have a balance and, and the other thing about rewilding as well is, is the model of rewilding normally is not just about having m- more sort of trees it's about hands off completely well hands off apart from shooting very large volumes of deer um, but when it comes to managing predators that seems to be a complete anathema to rewilders and, and that's the thing that probably causes the biggest ideological rift because you don't have to manage land for, for grouse, you don't have to manage land for farming, but the, the biodiversity outcomes of including predator control in a rewilding project could be far greater than if it was just merely rewilding for the sake of rewilding, if that makes sense. Uh-huh.
0: If you, however, introduced bigger predators, such as lynx and wolves, you'd have something that was preying on the, on the mesopredators, as we call them, and You wouldn't have to control them, you might have to do something with the wolves and lynxes. What's your view on the wolf and the lynx? Can we bring them back? Do you think?
1: Well, um, GWCT Scotland, we currently sit on the, the Lynx for Scotland um project. Um, I'm very open minded to it. I, I have some, some major concerns because with a lot of these things, it tends to be that the, 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 the public might want it, particularly in urban sort of part of the, the public might want it, but the cost of that is normally borne by people on the ground, like farmers. Now I think the 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 predator impact um, of lynx on sheep is probably significantly exaggerated. It tends the figures you, you hear tend to be used um, from Norway and it really is the outlier in Europe by a considerable margin. Um, so I think the the impacts of, of predation on sheep is is definitely exaggerated however there's are certainly areas i can see you know our farm in the king of classic example of of you know you have your winter grazing on the open hill sorry summer grazing on the open hill um links predation that open kind of ground prob- probably fairly insignificant but the winter grazing is is in by and it's surrounded by dense woodland in the case of our farm well that would imagine would be very rich pickings potentially for um for 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 links or certainly a lynx that may habituate to the fact that there's an easy target there with with sheep it might not be everyone so it's about how do you address the anomaly there has to be a fair system that the farmer can be supported whether that be through paying him to to change farming practices to make them better mitigated against lynx predation are you paying a compensation scheme Ultimately, there has to be, and this is under IUCN principles of 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 reintroductions. There has to be in mind how you do a partial rewind. You know, if this is causing a lot of problems, and there's a links in an area that's particularly habituated to to, to taking uh, sheep. Do 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 we remove that links? it's these sort of you know grown up conversations we need to have from the outset, and I think this is. The sort of route that links for Scotland's going down. I actually think it's really positive. A lot of stakeholder engagement. And I think if you can address these up front, so people actually know what they're getting, then it's far e- easier to win over hearts and minds. And and certainly across the UK, GWCT is fairly sort of um, say sceptical about links. But you've got to remember that in England, it's two hundred and seventy people per square kilometer. Uh, the Highlands it's eight per square kilometer, and that includes Inverness. So I th- I think Scotland, if anywhere in the UK is it's going to work, it, is, it 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 could be Scotland. And I certainly think we have to be very open minded, and I think we've actually got an obligation to at least assess the options. And wolves, I think I think wolves is probably a step too far in the public consciousness. You know, there's certainly most European countries now have wolves. Um, you know, it depends who you speak to. I know some people think it's all rosy and. All the farmers of, you know, in an article the other day in the Guardian about how that they're very accepting. But I know people in Scandinavia that um, absolutely loathe wolves and were warning me, whatever you do, don't don't do it. So I think you'll find divided opinions on wolves, even where they have been existing for a long time. I I, I think if 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 we are ever going to go down that route, we need to make sure that the likes of a lynx introduction is done properly, and if people see that work and it's not causing a huge amount of impact to people's lives then there may well be a discussion in 20 years' time that people might accept wolves. But I certainly think at the present moment, until we've taken you know, a, a, an intermediate step, I, I think it's fairly fanciful discussions.
0: Right, OK. Now, you mentioned deer management um, and the idea of shooting an awful lot of deer. That is the way that most people in the uh, broader conservation movement say we should go forward. Is that the view of the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust? Or is there something wrong with
1: that? No, I think I think in general there's a general acceptance that deer numbers were definitely too high on on the whole. I, I think the problem is we tend to have very simplistic approaches to it and we have arbitrary figures of number of deer per square kilometre, which isn't really evidence based. It needs to be looking at far more nuanced measures of, of herbivore impact. Um and and when we've just taken on someone who who's got a background, he's actually was a lecturer in deer management, um, and um, has a lot of expertise in using thermal imaging drones for, for for deer counts. So, you know, there's a certain element of of all of us accepting there's a brave new world. Um, it's it's less about the sporting side. I, I think the biggest issues for me about deer is again it's become so ideological that you're either one side where it's all about charging a huge amount of money to Piper. You know, a stag off the hillside on the back of a garan pony, and another side where people were being paid hundred pounds a skull to go out and whack deer in the, the the middle of the night by lamps. And actually, I see deer as a national resource far more in the sort of the Scandinavian or North European model, or North American model. Where actually, I I don't see why government agencies are spending millions of pounds of taxpayers' money shooting deer when there is a lot of people that actually would be quite happy to go out there and harvest meat for themselves. Um, as is done throughout the northern hemisphere and it, if we had more access to public hunting like that you might find attitudes to to, to, to hunting far uh, far different as certainly the case again in if you look at scandinavia you might find
0: yourself agreeing with the john muir trust there community hunting quickly now um caper we've been talking about that you and i recently for some other work we've been doing um caper Uh, the pine martin there's a problem there and there's a again this is one of those divides isn't it
1: in in some ways it it, it's one of the the biggest impasses we have in conservation the other flip side of that is there's one of the biggest opportunities to actually everyone to step up to the plate and 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 have a a shared approach and the reason i say that was the government. Last year, they got their scientific advisory committee, which is a panel of Nature Scott, independent scientists. So they had no skin in the game about previous research on Capicale, and They went and basically did a desktop exercise looking at all the data out there and compiled effectively what is what is the what's the scientific basis that we're all going to go forward on. And all the main organisations were consulted on this. And it came back, looked at four key principles. The key one being predation control, Managing the issue of deer fences, which I think most people have fairly sort of agreed on, a human disturbance, which problematic, but I think there's, there's some quite positive um, approaches to dealing with that. And then there's a fourth one, which was more or less a recommendation on top of saying we should try diversionary feeding as a trial.
0: But of course, anybody who doesn't know, the problem is, instead of being 20,000 K, K as there were 50 years ago, we've now got about four or 500 living in the wild
1: yeah I mean, our, our our latest surveys put it at three hundred and four i mean it seems a very precise number but that that that's that's statistical model is for you but you know we we are down to you know it's it's on the verge of extinction um it will almost certainly be extinct within twenty to thirty years that's but the government's own figures i think that's based on a population number that is 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 greatly higher than what we're now estimating so we're at an absolute critical point if it's not already too late then it's going to be too late very soon. Now, I think the, the the big step forward is Nature Scott went and commissioned this study. So we now have effectively, it's like the playground monitor coming in and, and there's probably no bird in the world that's been more researched than the Scottish capercaillie. So we've had the playground monitor come in and go, here are the facts. And when this report was launched, um, we had the head of policy for Nature Scott saying, the, one of the key issues or the key issue, if you're picking them all, is, is what do we do about Pine Martin? And from the outset, they said, this is not about lethal control of pine martin we we are going to propose trap and translocate but the problem was with that is they hadn't really consulted with the the, the one of the few organizations that actually have expertise in that area and as this process has gone on it's very clear that that is impractical for cost time con- consideration and also lack of donor sites around the country it's quite a comp- complicated area it took years and years and years for them to be able to release penny packet amounts of pioneers or releases down south so the idea of releasing large amounts on a regular basis from f- from the king's national park area it's it's no longer seen as a viable option by anyone
0: so, so the, the problem is that pine martin eat caper-cailing chicks and eggs and yeah. gwct would say we can't translocate them we can't move them, we can't do anything else we have got to cull them is that right
1: it's it certainly has to remain an option let, let, let's be realistic I mean, I mean the the key the key issue with Capricalia um is breeding success um and they are heavily predated pine martin are very 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 efficient at it so something needs to be done about pine marten so, so, some organizations are piloting the, the idea of diversionary feeding um i think the way they're doing that and without having all the details and having seen it in operation we, we do have some concerns that sometimes with but diversity feeding you end up actually increasing the overall predator population because you're encouraging them. Um, but I think that process could be refined, and you know it, it. We welcome it as as a positive step. At least somebody's doing something, and I think we need to monitor that and see how it uh, progresses. We've been putting forward our own some sort of middle middle way approach, which is using contraceptive baits. Um, we've got a, quite a bit of experience of this down south, and particularly Wales, um, where we've been using it to selectively bait grey squirrels in, in areas where they overlap with reds. And we've got a a trap device it has got a pressure plate and all sorts in in it. We've also done it for other species like mountain goats, and there's an international uh, institute that that's that in this area that's looking to work with us on this. So there's it needs a feasibility study, so we can't say it's it's the solution, but then you can't say that about diversionary feeding. Either at this stage, it's all very early stage, and I think both of these need to be looked at and they need to be funded to see if they work. The fact is, in the meantime, we are losing time. Um, we won't have Kelly to save if we wait for everything to, you know, to be peer-reviewed science in this area. There's a certain amount, and the report itself it talks about adaptive management. So you try something, and as you go along, you tweak and you try and find a solution, and as new information comes in, you, you, you adapt your approach as a result. It may well be that we have to look at culling in the short term, um, but I think everyone accepts that, that culling a species that is itse- itself you know, a protected species is, is never the, the first option we should be looking I at. Mean,
0: pine masters have only just recovered their numbers themselves. So let's hope then, Rory, that the caper outlive us.
1: I, well, I say, unless there's something nasty waiting for us around the corner, you never know, but, you know, I, I we're going to, we're going to see the Capacilli go extinct in our life, lifetime, if if everything remains the same, and, you know, it, it's it's one of the parts of my job I, I, I get very worked up about, and I'm probably a little bit more vocal and, and bullish on it than I probably should be, but, you know, at the end of the day, if, if you work in this sector, you want to be able to make an impact, and, it's one of our most iconic species, and if we can't save that, then you kind of look at all the, the Cinderella species out there and you think, well, the, who's going to help them? I, I, th- I think it's a, a really valuable species to try and fight for.
0: Thanks for listening, and I hope that's given you some food for thought. Remember, you can get me through the sadly diminished social network, now known as X, where I'm at Scott Nature Core, or you can find me on Facebook, LinkedIn, and even Instagram these days. Feedback, welcome.